What makes the very smart octopus's way of thinking so different from our own? Author Peter Godfrey Smith joins us to talk about his new book, Other Minds, The Octopus, The Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness. Perhaps something like two-thirds of the of the neurons in the animal are not where you'd expect to find them, you know, in the head, between the eyes, but spread through the whole body, especially in the arms. How can we keep up? Technology just keeps making the world spin faster, faster, and faster. Jeff Howe will be here to talk about his new book, Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. This is an age of very complex systems. There are no strict firewalls. Strength alone is is not a wise strategy, but resilience, um, being able to bounce back from failures and anticipate them. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Peter Godfrey Smith joins us now from Sydney, Australia. His new book is called Other Minds, The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness. Peter, thanks for being here. Thank you, Pamela. Why the octopus? The octopus is special because of a combination of two things. One is they're just such complicated and smart animals for invertebrates. They have enormous nervous systems for invertebrates, uh, especially for mollusks. That's especially interesting given their place in the evolutionary history of life. Um, All animals on Earth have common ancestors, and what differs is how far you have to go back to reach a common ancestor. So with us and chimps, it's about 6 million years. With us and an octopus, it's about 600 million years, which is very early in the history of animal life. So our most recent common ancestor was a worm-like creature. Uh, I mean, no one really knows. There's no fossil record of this animal, but perhaps less than, you know, certainly less than an inch long, most most likely. Very simple nervous system, very simple behavior. And from there, you get a branching in evolution where one side leads to, among other things, vertebrates like us. And on the other side, you get lots of animals the familiar invertebrate groups, many of the familiar invertebrate groups like, you know, insects and uh, things like that. And among that group, octopuses are this weird standout where you have an enormous nervous system. There's a news story that I, I seem to come across on Facebook. I guess it's like the animal world's version of a fake news story. The headline is always something like, octopuses are actually an alien species. And you write in your book that it's probably the closest we will come to meeting an intelligent alien. What do you mean by that? I mean, what's referred to there is, in some ways, really just the, the combination of those two facts. So they are pretty intelligent animals. They have big nervous systems, complex behavior. And like an alien would be, they're very far from us. We're not kin except in a very extended sense, you know, except in a sense that goes very far back in the history. If an alien was going to be an animal that had uh, no common ancestors with us, that was something that was completely independently derived, then an octopus is not that. Uh, It does have common ancestors with us, but uh, a very long time ago, 
that's enough time for everything to have um, evolved very differently, or at least in principle it could have evolved very differently down the two lines. In some ways what's surprising is, is how much similarity there is. Let's talk about some of the differences first. Um, the, the way in which their brains are distributed is fascinating. Right. More than half, perhaps something like two-thirds of the, of the neurons in the animal are not where you'd expect to find them, you know, in the head, between the eyes, as you would find them uh, with an animal like us, but, but spread through the whole body, especially in the arms, and in particular in the upper arms. So you really have to think of an octopus as having a set of different relationships between the controlling parts of the body and the part that's controlled. The arms have some degree of autonomy, at least with respect to the details of actions. The arms really uh, appear to uh, make their own decisions on where the arm's going to go. You write that they have no real clear brain-body boundary, that they're kind of like one big floating brain body in a way. Uh, I like that very much, one big floating brain body. Um, so both your way of putting it and my way of putting it uh, you know, ex- extreme formulations of something which I think is a- an important truth about these animals. So with, with a human being, you know, you've got the brain inside the skull and for the most part, you know, with, with all sorts of exceptions and interesting special, uh, special phenomena, the brain is working out what's going to happen and, and making things happen, send, sending commands uh, through the rest of the body. In the case of an octopus, that distinction between the part of the body that works out what to do and the part of the body that does what it's told is quite different. And in some ways, the distinction is is made problematic. Most likely, I mean, no one really knows about this, but most likely when an octopus acts, when it sends an arm out to do something, and they can do that, they can send a single arm out to do something, uh, there's a combination of control there where the central brain determines that the arm's going to go, you know, this general direction rather than that general direction. But then the arm itself engages in a kind of continual fine-tuning and exploration. As it goes, it, it, it touches and tastes and senses what's around it and makes its own adjustments. You've gone diving and you've been around um, octopuses. Um, have you had these kind of arm-to-arm or hand or body interactions with octopuses yourself? It, it can be quite disconcerting to watch them. So I remember one particular case where, um, I mean, it's often the case that if you if you set yourself up in front of an octopus den and, and reach out a hand or a finger, that the octopus will reach a single arm back towards you and will touch you and explore you. And it's important that whenever they touch you, they really are tasting you. Uh, that's That's meant literally not uh, figuratively, uh, the, 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 the suckers are full of organs of, of taste. Everything they touch, they're tasting. So it'll reach out an arm and, and touch you and taste you. And then the arm will often go on its own exploration, sort of perhaps up your wrist or into your wetsuit or somewhere more unexpected. My impression is when that's happening, the arm is, is at least very often making its own, making its own micro decisions about where to go. Do octopuses have emotions? There's a, a photograph in the book. There are these many excellent uh, photos of, of octopuses in Australia and New Zealand. And the first one is the quote-unquote gloomy octopus. Is he really gloomy? It's a, such a charming name for them. And the name is derived from that kind of slightly world-weary look 
that the animals have. Now, I think that uh, it's too much to think that that term, the gloomy octopus, picks out some truth about their emotional life. On the other hand, I do think that the the idea of emotion is a reasonable idea to apply to non-human animals, in, including octopuses. A good example, and, and one that you know makes a lot of sense in retrospect, is the feeling of stress. I think stress is something which is present in a great range of animals. And with octopuses, you can really see it. When they're stressed, you can tell that they're stressed. It's something quite similar, uh, most likely, in, in us and in, and in them. So stress and the opposite of stress, you know, a feeling of ease or a sort of relaxed feeling. I think that these are emotion-like states. Uh, I would also add uh, curiosity, the kind of sense of curiosity that humans feel, the sort of attentive directedness on an object and a, a desire to engage with it. That's something that's very characteristic of octopuses. They're, they're incredibly curious animals. They love novelty. They love new objects. If you take down something that's new and brightly colored uh, to an area where octopuses are active, there's a good chance that you, uh, it won't be with you when you leave. Uh, it will be added to their collection. Hmm. When you chose to write a book about the origins of, of consciousness, why choose the octopus as the sort of creature to focus that discussion around? There was an element of, of luck here. So, you know, for years I've worked on a mixture of uh, philosophy of biology, thinking especially about evolution, and philosophy of mind, thinking about, you know, how it's possible for a, a living, a biological system to have mental states and experiences. And in the American summers or the southern winters, I used to come back to Australia I just began spending more time in the water, diving and, and snorkeling around Sydney. And Sydney is full of cephalopods. I mean, there's several species of octopuses, several species of cuttlefish, uh, also squid. And I began to run into them. The ones that really got my attention first were the giant cuttlefish. Uh, it, it's hard to describe just how strange and spectacular these animals are, but they're, you know, two, two feet, sometimes three feet long. Their skin can change color completely in less than a second, and they can produce just about any color that you can imagine, uh, also patterns of various kinds. So I began to encounter these animals and uh, also encountered that, that fact I mentioned a moment ago, the fact that they're curious and they tend to engage with people. Then I began to wonder, okay, what, what was the what was the common ancestor, the most recent common ancestor of, of us and them like? And what was the evolutionary process that led to this, uh, this remarkable animal? That's how the book began. So I began to simultaneously just spend time with them, spend more and more time with the animals, uh, get that kind of firsthand acquaintance with them, and also began to think about the overall shape of the evolution of behavior and minds, the, the place that the evolution of the mind has within the overall tree of life. You go back to bacteria and then on to gelatinous creatures um, like jellyfish and focus on these sea creatures. How much does the being in water influence the development of consciousness? 
And, and how does that differ from the way it does on land? It's a difficult and important question, which I'm still thinking about. I think it does make a big difference, uh, the, the, the fact that life itself evolved in water, uh, perhaps not in the sea, but probably uh, in the sea. And certainly all the early stages in the history of animal life occurred uh, in the sea, in a marine environment, where the sorts of events that happened, the sorts of chemical and physical goings-on are quite different from the way they are on, on land. So when people think about the mind-body problem and think about physical systems and how a physical system might have mental states, I think people are too inclined to shape their thinking around familiar cases of dry land, macroscopic interactions, you know, tables and chairs and rocks like that. Matter itself behaves quite differently in a what's called the nanoscale, the, the scale at which basic biological processes happen, and occurs quite differently uh, in water. Those facts are important. So all of our cells, you know, our bodies contain a great deal of water. In a way, the bodies of land-dwelling animals like us have brought with them onto land the characteristic uh, physics and chemistry of the sea. All of the basic processes in our cells rely on that watery milieu. Given uh, that you've spent so much time underwater with cephalopods, could you describe maybe the most sort of interesting or kind of important uh, interaction that you've had with an octopus or a cuttlefish um, that sort of showed you just how different their way of thinking and interacting with others is from our own? I think that it would probably be some of the experiences uh, with giant cuttlefish and their ability to change colour. Uh, just to give you a, a sense of, of how elaborate this is. So if you're a giant cuttlefish, you can change the colour of your skin uh, to pretty much anything in less than a second. But also, you might want to produce one set of colours on your right-hand side and a completely different set of colours and patterns on your left-hand side. Uh, and you can do that. Uh, the brain controls all of the tiny, the tiny devices in the skin that produce different colours. And you can split your skin into what might be a, a sort of a, a friendly pattern, perhaps towards a, uh, an animal of the opposite sex on one side, and either a camouflaged or a more uh, defensive pattern on the other side. That makes me think that the sort of way of being in a body that these animals have is, is, is remarkably different from an animal like us. And you said earlier that there are also ways in which our consciousness, our way of thinking is similar. What would be an example of, of ways in which we think alike? So one of the surprising recent discoveries about octopuses is that they can recognize and remember individual people. This has been discussed in labs uh, and in aquariums in an anecdotal way for many years, but uh, recently Roland Anderson and Jennifer Mather and their collaborators tried to work out whether octopuses in captivity could remember and behave differently towards different individual humans, even when they're wearing the same clothes, and the answer was uh, that they could. That's a, a very interesting published finding that shows a kind of similarity in, in how octopuses pick out things or how they track things in the world, that they remember individual individual humans. I keep coming back to the, the, the kind of curiosity and the kind of engagement that they show, though. One event in Australia uh, that I remember in this way, 
uh, had the following form. So I, I often bring down tape measures and try to um, measure distances between animals and measure features of the site and so on. And these tape measures are interesting and brightly coloured to octopuses, and they, they can't get enough of them. Uh, they're <laughs> very attached to them. So there have been a couple of cases where I was able to uh, give an octopus one end of a tape measure and be quite sure it would hang onto it for me while I stretched out the other end and took a measurement. Having done that, the octopus would typically then, I think, hope to get the whole tape measure. <laughs> they would they would sort of pull it towards them? Yeah. You have a, a final chapter in your book. Um, is called Octopolis. What is it, Octopolis? That's a place uh, on the east coast of Australia where the event I just described, the, the sort of curious and acquisitive behaviours towards things like tape measures are observed. Uh, it's a site where octopuses are present in large numbers, in unusually large numbers, so you can have up to a dozen or so of the animals in quite a small area at once. And that is quite unusual. Octopuses are usually regarded as fairly asocial animals. And at this site, octopuses have had to sort of learn to get along a little bit, we, we think. Uh, there's a certain amount of aggression. There's quite a few fights, but there's also what seems to be a kind of navigating of their own aggressive tendencies. There are lots of sort of pokes and jabs and pushes and what we what often looks like a kind of high-five behaviour where an animal will sort of reach up, up an arm and have that arm sort of whacked by a different animal. Now, we don't really know what that what that involves. I initially thought of it as a kind of boxing, uh, but it may have some role in mutual recognition or registration of roles on the site. So the site Octopolis is a place where you just get a lot more interaction between octopuses than is typically observed. Interaction of that sort tends to produce complex behaviours. Well, it's interesting. There have been a number of books about octopuses in the last year or two. Um, it's like they're they're having a moment. Um, Peter Godfrey Smith is the author of the most recent book, reviewed this week in the book review, Other Minds, The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness. Peter, thanks so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Alexandra Alter joins us now to talk about the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So we're going to do the year in publishing stories. Yes, Tell the us. inevitable year in. <laughs> so it was an interesting year. It wasn't quite like 2015 when you had the rise of adult coloring books and the whole Harper Lee scandal slash saga and a lot of juicy publishing stories. But there were some surprises. Particularly, I was interested to see that two major bestsellers this year came out of plays. There was the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which I think set a new record when it sold more than two million copies in North America in the first two days of sale. That's the first time I think a play has become an instant bestseller like that. And of course, 
this play has the words Harry Potter in it, which are sort of magical words. Helpful. And J.K. Rowling's the author was one of the authors, oversaw the story. So that was unusual. And you also had Hamilton: The Revolution, which was the book based on Hamilton the musical, which itself was based on the biography by Ron Chernow. And this was co-authored by Lin Manuel Miranda and Jeremy McCarter. And it's still in the top twenty on Amazon. It came out in April. And Ron Chernow's book is selling quite well still, too. Well, both of those books are based on a play and a musical that are very hard to see. So That's right. It's a way. If you can't see it, exactly, which you I can can't. read it. Yes. And I think both have been popular, particularly Hamilton the Revolution, has been very popular as an audiobook, And that's a whole nother. That's more Hargitay. Exactly. Doing the narration. Yes. Another sort of surprise hit that I didn't see coming, I'll admit, was a little novel called A Man Called Uva that came out of Sweden. And it was actually first published here in 2014. The author is Frederick Bachman. And for some reason, I think with a lot of hand selling by independence and word of mouth, this book totally took off this year. This unknown Swedish author who wrote an, a debut novel about a cranky, suicidal, older Swedish man um, who becomes kind of a lovable curmudgeon by the end of the book. Um, for some reason, this was like the escapist feel-good story that everybody wanted to tell people to read this year. It was interesting to watch that book take off in a year when we had big novels from big names whose books didn't necessarily get that kind of traction. Which books didn't get the kind of traction that was expected? This fall was full of heavy hitters. There was Jonathan Saffron Foyer, Zadie Smith, Michael Chabon, Michael Chabon, Jonathan Lethem. Yes, yes. It was just almost like an embarrassment of riches mm-hmm. for you know literary fiction lovers. And I think they've all done reasonably well, but there wasn't sort of a breakout book. Probably if you were looking at a commercial literary crossover book this year, it would be Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, which got so much awards attention as well as an Oprah boost. So I think that was probably your leading literary fiction title of the year. Um, but there wasn't a surprise sort of breakout literary book of the year. What were the other big stories this year? You've continued to see interesting shifts in the way people are kind of absorbing books and reading, or in some cases not reading but listening. Ebook sales continued to fall this year as they did the previous year. They were down, according to the Association of American Publishers, by almost 20% in the first six months of this year. That's a big drop. A huge drop. What was the change in hardcover sales and paperback sales during that same time period? In that same period, hardcover books grew by 2.6%. Paperback books grew by 8%. So I think a lot of people are switching formats. Ebook prices have risen. And I think a lot of people are sort of abandoning their digital readers. They're maybe using their phones and maybe they're on their phone so much that when it's time to read, they would prefer a print book. Another question I have, and I, I'm going to be talking to people about this more, is whether the decline in ebook sales might in part be due to the rise of audiobooks. Um, with more people on their smartphones, everyone basically has an audio player in their pocket. And those grew in the first six months of the year by 31%. And that's been consistent for all the periods kind of going back you know, until maybe 2014 or even earlier, it's just this exploding, booming category that looks like ebooks used to look when you look at this, the growth trends. So it's possible that if people are using their devices, they're deciding to multitask and listen to books. Instead Can you of multitask and listen to books? I've never been able to do it. I can't even run and listen to a book. I, I can't would like, sing and cook at the same time. <laughs> no. I don't know how people do it. I'm impressed. I've even heard of people who listen to their audiobooks on double speed. 
These are like the speed listeners of the world. So they're incredibly productive. And finally, another kind of encouraging trend that we saw continue over from 2015 into 2016 is the rebound in independent stores. The Census Bureau reported that through October, bookstore sales were up 3.5% compared to the previous year, and they hit $9.77 billion. And we're looking at an, around 1,800 members of the American Booksellers Association, which is the group, the umbrella group for independent bookstores, in more than 2,300 locations. So it's still fewer than we've had, you know, decades ago. But it's an encouraging tick upwards. And they're, they've also reported higher sales than they had previously. But at the same time, Barnes & Noble is struggling. And that's, I think, a big concern for the publishing industry because in a lot of parts of the country, you know, independent bookstores are scarce and they're really depending on Barnes & Noble. And they've had big financial trouble. Their sales fell 4% in their most recent fiscal quarter, which ended on October 29th. And so you have their sales falling at the same time you have independence rising. I don't know exactly what the correlation is, if if more people are turning to independence or if it's just sort of the struggles of Barnes & Noble and these mega stores kind of not being able to compete in the same way that sort of an independent store that's tailored to the community can. Well, I'm going to bring it around to the happy part of that story, which is that indie booksellers are, in fact, thriving. So that's a happy note to take us into the new year. Alexander, thanks so much. Thank you. Jeff Howe joins us now. He is the author of a new book, Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future, which he co-wrote with Joey Ito. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you. Um, this was your first book that you have co-authored with someone else. Your first book was Crowdsourcing. So since Joey isn't here to speak for himself, um, tell us a little bit about uh, who he is and also what the MIT Media Lab does. Joey Ito dropped out of college his freshman year, um, proceeded to start Japan's first internet service provider, and then compile a track record of pretty incredible prescience and foresight about almost every aspect of our technological advancement, um, as, as well as investing in a lot of companies very early, like Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and he came in in 2011 as the director of the MIT Media Lab. And the Media Lab is, is sort of like American academe's skunk works. Uh, it's the island for misfit toys where artists who are too sciencey to fit into an art department go, and uh, scientists who are too artistic for uh, a science department uh, wind up. So you have a lot of really brilliant people there. Um, but, you know, you've got brilliance in, at Stanford and Harvard and, and other departments within MIT as well. With the Media Lab, it's people who truly think differently. So uh, since it was put together by Nicholas Negroponte in the 80s, um, it has been the home for uh, you know, productively eccentric thinkers. And so you have people working on everything from uh, state-of-the-art prosthetics, I mean, really amazingly responsive prosthetics, to brain science, to, uh, you know, new types of film. And, you know, it is media in the broadest sense, as it's always been explained to me, like, like to the extent that human cells are media, mm -hmm. um, as well as more traditional forms of media. But a, a lot of amazing uh, inventions uh, have come out of there as well, such as 3D printing and electronic ink. So you and you and uh, Joey got together, decided on the idea of what you wanted to write. The result is Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. What's the book that you set out to write, and how did the book actually end up once it was written? The book is, is 
largely the book we wanted to write. I mean, that first conversation we had in 2012, um, I was coming off of an experience with my first book, um, which had given me an opportunity to speak to a lot of uh, a really diverse set of audiences all over the world, um, everywhere from speeches in Russia and Kazakhstan to addressing Vladimir Putin to five days later talking to the National Corn Growers Association. And, and Joey, of course, has, you know, he's been in a position to speak to such audiences, you know, for pretty much his whole adult life. Uh, and, and one area where we really agreed was that, that people had failed to understand the implications of the digital age. Mm-hmm. You know, well, of course, gosh, it's been 20, 25 years. Like, of course, we've entered the digital age when, in fact, our ways of thinking haven't. Uh, and and once we are working on the book, but one thing I did that didn't even wind up in the pages, I could almost write a whole other book on the research I did. Um, but, but but I spent a summer like inhabiting 1815 to try to get a sense of the transition between uh, you know an agrarian age and the first industrial age. Um, and it 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 was amazing to see the extent to which as as late as 40 years after the publication of Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations. Most people, even, I mean, merchants, investors, you know, still had not put together the implications of, of capitalism mm-hmm. and, and becoming industrialism. And in fact, the, the people really invent capitalism in the U.S., uh, they're, they're the master craftsmen. It's not the merchants. It's not the money people. It, it, it comes out of people who, on a day-to-day experience, finally put it together. That maps very neatly into what we are seeing now, uh, where you have a, a lot of pretty dramatic change and institutions and attitudes uh, which are very much stuck in industrial age thinking, we would argue. I mean, one of the reasons I asked about the book you set out to write and the one that you actually ended up uh, writing is because you worked in it for several years and it's about surviving the faster future and presumably the future is happening while you're writing and researching. Um, did it feel like you kind of had to kind of keep catching up yourselves with what you uh, were with was, the subject of It was, it was amazing. So one of the biggest breakthroughs to happen in our lifetimes happened while we were writing the book uh, and that was the development of, of CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, which, you know, for, for lack of a more, you know, involved explanation, allows people to, to program a genetic change almost the way you would program a computer. Um, so it's, it's incredibly consistent, it's incredibly reliable, um, and it has, you know, radically changed the prospects for gene editing and everything from, you know, the science of genomics and personalized medicine um, to, uh, you know, reinventing extinct species like the Neanderthal. It's had huge implications. It was discovered around the time that we were signing the contracts on the book. Uh, it was, was publicized, you know, the, the first paper was published while we were writing it. Mm-hmm. It was being perfected while we were in edits, and by the time that, you know, this year, it's the stuff of high school science there. Hmm. That's how quickly CRISPR moved into the mainstream. And, you know, a lot of our book wound up being about biology, because if the 20th century was the digital century, we're, we're beginning now what will be the biological century. Biological literacy is so important, because we as, as a nation of people, um, as a, you know, a planet of people, need to help decide what we want to do with these technologies. There are people that are predicting that Homo sapiens itself will be an extinct species that we will have forked 
as a software programmer would put it, that are versioned. They, there will be new versions of Homo sapiens within the hundred years. So, uh, you know, if, if we're looking at, at radical changes to ourselves as a species, it's a conversation you want everyone in on. The title Whiplash um, sounds very appropriate. It kind of describes how I feel listening to you. But your, your subtitle is uh, How to Survive Our Faster Future. I'm assuming that's the, the response to the whiplash. What are some of the ways we can uh, survive this rapidly shifting world? Well, I, you know, we're, we're sort of cautious optimists, and, and the book was really written, you know, for as, as wide an audience as possible, you know, because we believe that there, there are some, you know, we call them principles. Each, each chapter is organized around one of them, and there are nine, but fairly straightforward ideas, that some of which aren't, you know, terrifically new at all, um, that if people, you know, especially people with some, you know, who are deciders with, you know, power in their, uh, you know, respective institutions could get their heads around it, that, that they would be able to make their companies, their, you know, their agencies, their families uh, much more adaptive um, for a period of rapid change. And so one of those is, is something like resilience over strength. Um, and, and we see this probably most dramatically uh, in, in cybersecurity. It's, it's, you know, we are in an age where if Russia wants to hack a, a party server, it's just going to. I mean, there isn't really anything uh, that can be done. We, we, we had one, one uh, researcher in cybersecurity make the analogy of, of it's, it's like, you know, castles were awesome, and then suddenly someone invented the cannon. And mm-hmm. the advantage went from defense to offense, right away. There wasn't really anything for hundreds of years to be done about that. Suddenly, castle walls were no good. So what we've had to do, certainly when it comes to areas uh, around cybersecurity, is, is you just accept defeats and you learn how to function within that. Another researcher told me that within 20 minutes of coming online, a corporate server has already been compromised. Iran has some bots in there. China has some bots in there. We have some bots in there. And so it's more about accepting that we live in a complex system, and that's sort of the theme of the book, is, is that this is an age of very complex systems. There are no strict firewalls. That strength alone is, is not a wise strategy, but resilience, um, being able to bounce back from failures and anticipate them um, and have you know, diverse strategies so that if one doesn't work out, uh, it, you know, you've got not just a B plan, but a C, D, E, F, but how is it possible, given all of that ingenuity that you're talking about with the, um, you know, the gene transformations, that we can't fight against the hacking? It's kind of like with the cannon and the castle wall. It's, it's, it's just on a technological level. There's just no way to, you know, given however, you know, X million lines of code uh, to... Uh, you know, create a, a perfectly impervious system. I mean, wh- one thing we've even learned is, is that even when we have systems in, 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 in national security, we do, that aren't even connected to the Internet, uh, they can be compromised by what they call the sneaker net. And a sneaker net means that someone gets physical access to a system, slips in a USB drive, and boom, then that's compromised. All right. I'm not feeling cautiously optimistic yet. Um, <laughs> let's go to another one of the principles that you talk about, um, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll feel a little bit happier about the world. You have chapters here. Uh, pull over push um, is your second chapter. What does that mean? You no longer need to push out 
to identify and find the resources you need, but that the network itself will provide, will sort of identify the need and provide. And, and, and the great example is, is one from Joey's own life, uh, and that's uh, shortly after the Fukushima nuclear disaster, uh, there, uh, uh, Joey and some other people in Japan and with a lot of experience in Japan identified that there would be a real need uh, for nuclear monitoring. In the old days, you would have tried to convene a set of experts, you know, where should we monitor, what should these monitors look like, what should they be monitoring, um, you know, who will go in there, and that indeed is what the Japanese government was doing at that time. Um, but Joey started a nonprofit called SafeCast, or, you know, at first it was just a collection of people emailing each other. Just by fact that it had been created in word of mouth, the people who had uh, the right set of skills that were needed migrated to this cause, and literally within days, they had created a blueprint that just about anyone could create a, a small device to monitor nuclear exposure, and they were being put up all over Japan, um, and, and the, the results being publicized. And in fact, in several cases, they completely overturned what the government was saying, hmm. and areas which had been labeled as, as safe or moderately safe were shown, in fact, to be quite more dangerous. That was all self-organized. There was no single intelligence that had to say, uh, you know, we need this person and that person. The examples that you're giving um, tend to be a little bit political in nature. And I'm curious, uh, given that you finished the book uh, before the election, um, and it is, as you say, a cautiously optimistic book, did the um, election results here and sort of the overall um, state of global insecurity alter that? sense of optimism in any way? It did, I would say. Um, I think if you were to ask the book who would win that election, the book would say Donald Trump. You know, Hillary ran a much more traditional campaign. Donald Trump, in a lot of ways, in his improvisational abilities, um, his spontaneity, um, his utter disregard for a lot of political shibboleths, or you know, at least you know, campaigning shibboleths, ran a campaign along the line of, of the principles. And, and in some ways exemplifies something you get out of our book, which is, is, you know, you have to stop, people have to stop thinking of technological change, the Internet, as, as this, you know, positive democratizing force. It, the democratizing force, yes. It, will that always generate the kind of change we're interested in? Not necessarily at all, as, as the hacks themselves uh, demonstrate as well. Um, I, I would say the way it's made me worried, and, and I really will just speak for myself here because Joey and I have slightly different views, although in broad strokes we're in agreement, we're going to tack further away from an idea of you know what some companies in, say, Scandinavia are already getting close to, which is universal basic income. One thing that became clear in researching the book I felt uh, was that what, a great number of jobs are going to be automated. That's going to happen. I mean, there are a lot of things in the book that we say, look, we don't know. We, we, you know if there's anything we know, it's that predicting future was always a mug's game, and it's, it's even harder now. The system has more volatility in it. You know, many more black swans are going to happen. So, so we don't know what's going to happen. But one thing we do know is that, is that more and more jobs are going to be automated, and, and that means more and more money going to the top, even larger disparities between the wealthy, you know, the, the haves and the have-nots, 
and some sort of redistribution is going to be needed from any political vantage point. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this goes beyond ideology. This goes to, do we want to live in the Hunger Games or not? Right. And, and if we don't, we're going to have to figure out some equitable form of wealth redistribution that still provides the kind of incentives um, that, that capitalism does, um, and does so you know, in, in some very effective ways, but also provides some fairness to people who are born into environments where they aren't going to have access to health care, maybe even enough to eat. Okay. You haven't entirely made me feel better, Jeff, um, but you have uh, <laughs> offered a lot of food for thought here. The book, again, is called Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future by Joey Ito, who is the director of MIT's Media Lab, and by our guest, Jeff Howe, who is the author previously of Crowdsourcing. Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you. John Williams and Greg Coles join us now to talk about what we're reading. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. So it's our last podcast of the year, um, and I thought we would talk a little bit about what we'd like to read at this time of year, even uh, those of us or those of you who are going to be in the office over the holidays, um, or at least for part of them. Let's talk about like what you like to read at this time of year, end of year, vacation time. Christmas season. Well, being in the office is actually a good a good point, and that kind of complicates what I like to read at this time of year because I always still think of myself somehow as a student. I always think of the holidays coming up, and oh, I'll have two or three weeks off, <laughs> um, which is I barely have two or three days off in the coming <laughs> weeks. So I'm still trying to wrestle with what I'm going to read in the next week or so. I at first I thought about um, the Magic Mountain, which I haven't read, so I picked oh, these sort so of good. big ambitious things. Yeah, or um, but you need that two weeks. <laughs> you need the two <laughs> the weeks, Mountain. and so I think I'll probably end up reading more slender things. But that's that's what I like to read. If I were a grad student at this time of year, that's what I'd be reading, catching up on the giant classics. How about you, Greg? Uh, what, what I often do, um, and it has everything to do with the calendar year, that kind of the changeover um, and, and taking stock in that New Year's kind of resolutions kind of way, is go back and read the books that are part of the conversation, that have been part of the conversation in the past year or so, that I didn't have a chance to read. Um, mainly uh, in fiction, if, if I was not the assigning editor on them. So uh, one book, I, I have not read The Vegetarian yet, and I know, Pamela, you really enjoyed that this year, and we picked it as one of our best of the year. Um, I still have not had the opportunity, and so um, that is a book very much on my radar to um, get a copy of and to read that. And another one that um, was one of our 10 best last year, is Paul Beatty's The Sellout. And it went on, of course, to be the first American novel to win a Booker Prize uh, in 2016. It did that. So uh, that is a book that I I just recently bought and is sitting waiting for me on my bedside table um, that I very much hope to read uh, in coming days. I just saw Paul Beatty in conversation with Amanda Foreman at her House of Speakeasy event, her Um, last one of the year. And it was great because, you know, he didn't want to get up there and talk, which is normally what the guests at this particular series do. Um, but he agreed to be interviewed. And the moment he got up there and um, Amanda was the head of the uh, Man Booker Prize uh, judge panel um, that, of course, in the end selected his book uh, as the Man Booker Prize winner. Um, so she started to ask him about the novel. And almost immediately he's like, why the hell did I agree to this? I hate <laughs> talking about my work. He did everything he could to, like, deflect the conversation and talk about other things. And he was fantastic. Fantastic in the end, uh, but we didn't. He did not talk that much about the book. Man, he's great. What about you, Pamela? Do you have a system this time of year? You know, I usually go up to Vermont um, at this time of year um, and uh, to the same house, and uh, it has this great 
big fireplace, like one of those fireplaces, very unlike my fireplace at home, um, where you can throw like 50 logs on it, you know, and the room never gets all smoky. It, and it just, it's so cold that it all just flies immediately out. And it's not, you know, my house, so I can just, you know, use up all the firewood. And I generally bring a bunch of books with me. And there's also a great bookstore near there, um, Northshire Books in Manchester, where I inevitably buy yet more books. In fact, one of the books that I'm hoping to read this year is one I bought at Northshire last year, which was um, John Williams, no relation, um, John Williams' Stoner, which I've been meaning to read for years. Um, Last year, I think, or the year before, I read um, Bleak House, uh, which was, to me, sort of perfect like winter one. vacation yeah. reading. So I, I read Bleak House. Dickens just feels so perfect for yeah. this time of year. Um, I'm not sure if I'll dig into uh, Dickens this year, but hopefully I will come back and be able to talk about Stoner. In just a week. Yes. Happy yeah. New Year, guys. All Happy right. New Happy New year. New year to all our listeners, too. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.